The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Uh, I'm glad I made it into the studio today. We have a, a, a pretty bad storm right now with snow, and I think when I leave, it's going to be raining. It's been such a crazy winter. Um, but I'm very excited for today's show, and we're lucky to have two women with us this afternoon. One we have missed for a couple of weeks, and that is our own in-house um, sponsor and contributor to the show, Dr. Beth Beaumont-Dupree, who's uh, joining us as VP of Holy Redeemer Hospital, who I always love to give a shout-out and a thank you to for supporting the show. And we also have waiting in the wings our uh, very special guest this afternoon. Her name is Lindsay Pattison, and Lindsay is the CEO of Maxis Worldwide. She is also a writer for the HuffPost, and she is vice chair for the WEF Global Agenda Council on the Future of Media. So we're going to have a lot to talk about, and I want to bring uh, Dr. Beth Dupree onto the show first so we can find out what she's been up to the past couple of weeks. Beth, welcome to the show. Hey, Sue, how are you? It's wicked snowing up here in Huntington Valley as well. Yes, it's re- I, I, mean, uh, I didn't expect it to be this strong, but it's really coming down here. It's, last week it was crazy. I was in the operating room, and there was no prediction for snow whatsoever. And I look every morning because I decide what vehicle I'm driving for the day. Right. And I was in the OR, and the snow squalls were so bad for almost two hours that the Huntington Pike was really backed up. There were accidents, and... Today, I had the same thing. I, I left the office thinking that I had 25 minutes to get from my office to the hospital for a quality and performance meeting, and I ended up five minutes late because the pike was suddenly like, I think it's because it's so frigid outside that when the snow falls, it doesn't melt. It sticks to the ground. It's kind of like an instant, um, almost like when your when your tongue is, gets stuck yeah. to the popsicle. <laughs> right. Um, or I the think pole. that's happening yeah. to the snow. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. I don't put my tongue on the pole. Um, <laughs> I always think of the Christmas story. <laughs> and and yeah, and I've missed you every Monday because you know Monday's my surgery day, mm-hmm. one of my two surgery days, and you know patient care comes first. Yes. And we have. I have been so unbelievably busy in surgery that I've basically been operating straight through from 7.15 in the morning until 4.30 in the afternoon. And um, it kind of is what it is. And since that's my day job, um, I have to – I got to do my day job first, but the patients appreciate it. And I actually got a very cute poem this morning. I can't really read it on the air, I think, because – but I I was told I I can't say anything bad because I can't be bleeped today. Um, No profanity But I have never been show. bleeped. I just want you to know. But I got an adorable poem from a patient who her insurance company told her last week that um, I really wasn't in network or that my hospital wasn't in network and that she could just find a new surgeon. And this is someone that I've been caring for since September, going through neoadjuvant chemo, which is chemo up front before surgery. And I pretty much took issue with the company, got three denials at three different levels, and finally got a medical director on the phone and pretty much explained to this person that they would probably want to 
you know, do the right thing for the patient, blah, blah, blah. And in the end, um, they did, and I'm doing her surgery tomorrow, but she sent me a poem this morning, which is very cute and very funny, um, because she was just happy that I was her pit bull and that I was a patient advocate and willing to go to bat for her because, um, unfortunately, sometimes patients don't have advocates on their side, and they are forced to, you know, switch care midstream. And, you know, to me, that's what, what it's all about is, like, how do we give the best care for our patients and get them through a really scary process? Well, you know, Beth, you it's know? remarkable to me that you, you as the surgeon, would, as, as a vice president of the hospital, would pick up the phone and handle that. Do you not have, or you probably do, but you do it anyway, because you make it happen, but someone, you know, in an administrative role that um, handles those types of situations with insurance companies? Well, we do, and I mean, I have we have um, individuals in my office who do pre-authorizations, which basically means that you're calling up the insurance company and you're giving them the CPT codes or the codes that we're going to bill for for surgery, the expected codes, mm-hmm. and you get the authorization from the insurance company. Um, so yes, I do have people that do that. When someone when they deny something and they say, "Sorry, it's out of network. It's this. It's that," you know, then at that point um, they do the my staff does the first level of appeal. But um, we get to this process where it's called a peer-to-peer, where I have to talk to a physician. Now, the physician at the insurance company, I mean, I'm a breast cancer specialist. I'm a surgeon. That person could be a radiologist, an internal medicine doctor, a pediatrician. Like, they don't have to have the same specialty degrees that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I'm talking to this person on the phone, sometimes I am really having to educate this physician about why, I need a certain test or why this is, you know. This case was um, that the insurance company had paid for a previous procedure with her, have paid for all of her office visits, and now um, five or six months into her treatment says, well, no, she needs to go to a hospital in New Jersey. Oh, I'm geez. like, are you kidding me? Yeah, right. And, right. you know, so for the, the stress that, that a patient goes through, to basically, you know, have their insurance company say, well, you could just find another doctor. And, yeah, there are lots of very good doctors in New Jersey. I know several of them myself. But when, you know, it, it, it goes back to the basic root of there's physicians and patients have a relationship. Um, unfortunately, that relationship has been undermined in multiple ways mm. over, um, you know, the past 25 years as, as far as I see it. But I believe that that relationship that I create with the patient, that trust, that level of care. And, you know, I, I love my patients. I have a huge heart. I know that my heart gets broken occasionally when a patient dies of their disease, but that doesn't make me a bad doctor. That makes me a physician that cares about their patients. And I think one of the things that, and, and this goes across every every avenue of life, though, um, we've begun to, like, start just rolling over and accepting things and not really standing up for what we believe or going to bat for people because it's the right thing to do. And, I, you know, I think it, it translates into lots of different areas where, you know, people just don't want to fight for their rights. They don't want to stand up for what they truly believe in. And, you know, for me, I, I believe that I can give the best care for my patient that I've already had an established relationship with. And, you know, we're finding it more and more because so many different insurances now are kind of um, – they're renegotiating contacts with hospitals and payers, and they're trying to find better deals. And the people that suffer in the end are the patients That's because right. they're the ones that buy the insurance. So they have to live under those rules. And um, my, my take-home message to all of our listeners are, you know, when you sign up for an insurance, a lot of times we look at the bottom line. What's it going to cost every month? 
um, and you look at it and say, yes, I have coverage for this, I have coverage for that. But if you don't read the fine print, nobody buys insurance expecting to get breast cancer. Nobody buys insurance expecting to need an organ transplant. You know, most of us, the major, vast majority of people buy insurance because it's a policy and it's, it's insurance so that in the event that you get ill, we're going to have coverage. We're going to be cared for. And so when you don't read the fine print, you don't know that certain things are out of network or that you're going to have a $5,000 deductible before you even before your insurance even pays. And with so many different insurances on the um, healthcare exchanges, we're finding that patients really don't understand what is covered and what's not covered, and they don't figure it out until they get ill. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we, a lot of us probably need an attorney to, to read over all of this fine print. You know, that's that's part of the issue. You know, you don't really understand it. You know, you might take the time to read it, but you, you don't quite understand it. So. It's complicated, but you know the hospital it is and, and the very complicated. yeah your your patients are particularly are very lucky to have you who goes above and beyond you know what most of the doctors are doing to advocate for them both at the hospital and of course with your foundation and all of the and, other work and I got I got a poem out of it and how you got cool a, is that <laughs> uh, my my you know it was it's very cute and um, because I don't know if I'm allowed to say the one word on the air. I can't read it because I just can't <laughs> freak anybody out at the station because they'll be like, oh, my God, she's up in Huntington Valley. What's she going to say? <laughs> so just suffice it to say it rhymed. It's fabulous. And I'm getting, um, you know, I'm getting to take care of my patient to follow through her care. And that's can really what Can you put it up on the website? Me. Put it up on the website. Yeah, we'll I'm sure I can. It. It's, a, be, it's a good one. I'll, actually, I can, I, I'll post it on Facebook, too. It's very cute, and it rhymes. So I, uh, she kind of calls me a pit bull in the, in the thing, but that's okay. If the shoe fits, I'll wear it, and <laughs> uh, that, that's, a good, that's a good use of a pit bull. But I have been, uh, since we've talked last, I've been busy. I've been to a leadership institute in California. I've been to an advisory board meeting in Amsterdam, um, been teaching, and um, doing some really good stuff. I'm, I'm I'm thrilled because I'm getting to uh, use a lot of years of my experience in what I do to really help create change in healthcare. And um, this new role as a vice president is um, kind of interesting. And I'm sure our, our guest Lindsay will have lots to say about leadership because it's interesting when you shift from being a physician who is just you know part of you know part of the process to a physician who now has to become part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot easier to not have to um, be involved in these administrative decisions, but I'm actually really enjoying it because I am working as a dyad. We have a really interesting governance at Redeemer where physicians and, um, you know, hospital administrators were working side by side to solve the problems and to come up with solutions to healthcare issues hopefully before they even become an issue for us. And that's the really interesting part. And I didn't think that I would actually like it as much as I do. I don't like all the meetings, but I'm learning in all of these meetings that there are a lot of things that we can um, potentially help prevent um, concerns and issues for our patients by thinking big, thinking outside the box, and by bringing all of these most amazing, um, you know, minds together and that is that's what's really cool about the leadership that I'm involved with right now. So I'm uh, I'm loving it. Well, that's great. That's great. And it always comes back to you know patient 
patient-centered, patients-first. Um, Absolutely. Um, listen, let's let's bring Lindsay onto the show. And again, uh, if you're just tuning in, our guest this afternoon is Lindsay Patterson. Lindsay is the CEO of Maxis Worldwide. She also writes for the Huff Post, and she's vice chair for the WEF Global Agenda Council on the Future of Media. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Pleasure. Nice and and nice I meet you yeah, you're in New York, correct? I am, so I'm I'm really not used to this weather at all. So. You're not. I know. Poor you. I was thinking about you this morning. Um, and uh, so you're just to give the listeners um, your background a little bit. You were born in Chipping Norton, England. Uh, yeah. Yes, the youngest of, of four siblings. And uh, tell me about Chipping Norton. I I believe is a small town. It's a small village. It's um, yes. it's actually quite famous in the UK now because. There's talk of the Chipping Norton set. So it's a Cotswold village, and it's where Rebecca Brooks, who used to run the News of the World and the Sun newspaper, she's got a house there. David Cameron, the Prime Minister, has a house there. Jeremy Clarkson, who's the presenter of Top Gear. So there's quite a lot of rich London media people and government people that have. So I was definitely not part of the Chipping Norton set. (laughs) And I was born many years ago. It was the only place that actually had a um, a maternity hospital. So I'm from Oxfordshire, but Chipping Norton is just a small village, which now is is quite famous. But for I'm not connected. I'm not connected to that set. (laughs) Okay. So how did you get involved in in the swimming? I I understand that you you were very much a competitive swimmer and actually were involved in some trials for the Olympics. How did you um, get involved in that? Yeah, well, I think my mum, God bless her, had um, four children under the age of five. So I don't know how quite she managed to do that. I look at I look at her now with um, with awe. But um, so four kids under the age of five, and I think she was looking for something that maybe all of the kids could do together. So it was girl, girl, boy, girl. I'm the youngest of the four, and I guess swimming is you know gender neutral. Uh, so she, she obviously it's a skill that everyone should have. So she took us all to swim at a really early age, and it was easy for us all to join the swimming club, and we'd all be carted off to training in the morning for school and after school and then do the galas at the weekend. So I think it was originally a good way, a good discipline and a good way for us all to, to do sport together as kind of girls and boys. Yeah. And I loved it. Uh, I think I think the discipline of training, I think, you know, competing, uh, when I look back with hindsight, I think all of those things were quite helpful and quite formative in, in making me into the sort of work-based person I am today. Yeah. So Lindsay, I'm, I'm one of seven children and my parents had seven in 10 years and I often say you know I'm just amazed having only had two children I don't know how my mother maintained her sanity and um, we had a swimming pool in the backyard which was again another way that it was a great way to keep all of us in the area and um, keep us all completely occupied at the same time and I think that's one of the one of the greatest gifts of a mom is to figure out how to keep your kids safe engaged and playing nicely with each other and not pulling each other's hair out Exactly. Uh, Lindsay, one of the things I read about you, um, and I've read this several times, you're described as a a positive force of nature, which I think what a wonderful way to be um, described. And um, when you were, you were appointed CEO of Maxis just recently, 2015, is that correct? Yeah, October as the global CEO. Yeah, I I was running in the UK before then. So I'm wondering, one of my questions is when when that came about, what was your mindset going into that? Um, well, I guess slight terror. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) And and also kind of a a healthy dose of careful what you wish for, because I I wanted the job and I was quite um, punchy and quite clear to my my boss's boss that that I wanted the job or I felt able to do that job should there be a change in leadership. You know, I, did, I didn't really want to sit by the sidelines and have somebody else put on, on top of me. So I guess I'd <laughs> landed some of those messages. And then, when, of course, when I was offered it, I then thought, you know, fabulous, but also terror. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the first person I called was, was my husband because he knew that I was, you know, possibly in running for it. And, um, and then the second person I called... I mean, immediately after was a coach, a fantastic woman who I've worked with for a number of years Mm. to say, oh, my God, this has happened. Can I see you literally in the next two days? (laughs) (laughs) To get that boost of that boost of confidence. And and your husband, I believe, is in the industry as well. Yeah, he founded a a rival um, media agency who I used to work for. He, He doesn't he no longer, thankfully, runs that that agency. Otherwise, that would be quite tricky but um yeah we made it work but it's helpful that he he understands the context of the industry the challenges the you know the 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 hours i work and the travel i do so he is pretty empathetic yeah the travel especially that you know that's difficult how often are you in the u.s and how often are you home um i would say at the moment i'm i'm in london probably one week out of four Mm. um so it's it's um i don't want to say it's worse than it's ever been that sounds negative so it's um different (laughs) to how it's been before but i i I like the travel i think it's a really important part of my job you know we've got 55 we we operate in 55 markets and it's very clearly the division of where our our revenues i would say 80 percent of our revenues come from our top eight to ten markets so it's clear really where my focus needs to be in which markets are going to be the most profitable or, or have the most return on investment from me going out there but equally it's important to meet some and go out to some of those high potential markets who aren't in our top 10 yet but we know have got the potential that have great leaders and that actually getting out and meeting people is sort of almost has a disproportionately positive or that's my aim disproportionately positive effect because everybody is important in our you know across the network and, and sometimes going in meeting with the senior team I always do a town hall when I get to a different market and explain a bit about me and, and my you know how the company is doing at a global level and also what the strategy is for the year and, and I always make sure I call out locally what they've done and what you know some of the you know some of the hard success metrics so what they've done for clients or new business wise but also I've worked quite hard before to try and get a more sort of jokey or softer slide about things I also know, which are the kind of the office secrets and the romances and who's been complaining <laughs> about towels on the bathroom floor and trying to sort of try and be a bit more intimate and um, personal with them all. Yeah. yeah. So the travel is, is challenging, but it's also great. It's a great part of my job. I bet. I bet. You know, you've actually, while you, you know, you mentioned you were a, a little bit frightened to take on such a big role, you, you've actually been in, in media for over 20 years. And I was wondering if there was a campaign that you are particularly proud of, uh, maybe a memorable campaign that, that you've worked on in the past that you kind of continue to celebrate even today. Uh, well, the piece of work I'm most proud of from Maxis, which is not is not my own work, is a piece of work our India office did for Tata Tea. It's called The Power of 49. And, and The Power of 49 is about the 49% of the population um, in India who are female who, who generally, A, don't vote, and B, have no 
have no real voice in Indian politics. And it's obviously well documented that there are lots of challenges um, with how women are portrayed or, or attacks on, on women um, in India. And sort of the hierarchy of gender in that nation is, is quite extreme. So Tata T um, you know, wanted to do something about it. And we worked and, and created a whole uh, campaign around the power of 49, trying to give a voice to that 49% of the country. So creating um, across Facebook and other social media, um, people could log incidents of where there were, you know, gender issues or attacks or, or things that felt unfair. So that would start to build up a map across the country of where there were injustices. And then we turned that into a 10-point manifesto that we took to each of the main political parties to get them to, to agree and sign up to a manifesto for what they needed to do on behalf of women. Mm. And we encouraged women, um, because, they're, because the political parties now had something to say that was meaningful to women in India, to increase their participation in the elections, which it did, you know, voter intent went up by 300% and more women voted in India than ever before. And that sounds a bit odd, you kind of go, well, what right does a tea brand have to do that but you know in in brands and in marketing we don't we don't just try and sell cups of tea i think some brands that have moved along the kind of evolutionary scale feel that they have a broader role to play in society um and that's certainly what that campaign did so that's just a piece of work which is is that it's an outstanding piece of work and it, and it was truly meaningful yeah, well, and living on today, right? You know, yeah, that's absolutely. that's wonderful. You know, well, of course, you you're a, you know a, a strong advocate for women in general in leadership, and you've supported them in many different ways. And I, I was wondering when uh, and and how did you first kind of uh, notice that you had this advocacy for female leadership? Was it as a young girl, or did it come later in life? Your interest? I guess my interest. Was slightly later as you get more senior, you, you know, the, the stats are now well documented. You just, you know, we start out in our industry at least 50-50 women, men, and in fact, actually in in, in Maxis it's 63% women to 37% men. But as you go higher up, obviously that number drops off, and it's a well, you know, well documented triangle where there are fewer and fewer women at the top. So as I became more senior myself, I'd noticed that the meetings I was in became more male than 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 equal um now we have in the uk a, a brilliant organization called wackle which is w-a-c-l which stands for women in advertising communication london and i was president of wackle last year but i guess when i was growing up in london it was an organization i was aware of and always aspired to join and it's a club which is set up to support um and inspire the most senior women in advertising marketing communication to to get to the top and stay at the top, actually, as well, which are two slightly different things. Um, and so I always wanted to become a member because it always just seemed like this amazing women's club with brilliant female heroes. Um, and and what's interesting is that club is 92 years old. Yes, so. I, that's all, that, that was ahead of its time, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So people do say, do we still need you know, that kind of club, isn't it all right these days? You know, should you stop banging on about women, uh, Lindsay? Um, <laughs> and say, the answer is no. No. <laughs> <laughs> we have a long way to go. Yes. yes. Uh, and when you look at the stats, it, you know, it, it's borne out. Um, you know, advertising isn't that bad. I mean, there's other industries, and I know you, I, I was listening to some of the other podcasts, so Tracy talking about women in technology. You know, mm. they are, it's worse, women in science, tech, engineering, maths, 
STEM is, is much worse than advertising, but 25% of senior leaders in the UK and the US in advertising broadly, if you're generous with the definition, e.g. not just CEO, are female. So it's okay, but it's not equal. And obviously, if you look at the broader stats, you know, at the Fortune, um, the S&P, or the FTSE 100, I think, you know, broadly it's 5% of the top 100 companies are female. So it's just it's just not good enough. And in advertising or media, I only know of one other female global CEO. So, you know, what's happened to the 50 or 60% of women that started out at the same time as me? Exactly. That's exactly right. And, you know, when we talk about these numbers and these percentages and statistics, what are some of the things that you believe from a personal standpoint are, um, you know, is keeping the, keeping the, um, the, cha- the change from coming, you know, and in, in other words, what are the, what are the things that you feel, I hate to say hold women back, mm-hmm. but yeah. it, it's, there's multiple things, right? There's cultural things and, you know, there's things around business and how it's run. And then there's personal, um, personal matters that, that women have kind of the lack of self-esteem and confidence. What do you believe is, is at the top of the list? Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're exactly right. It's a whole mix of those. I mean, I do think there are, uh, you know, we sort of talk about this tightrope that women walk and walk along, which is if you're seen as liked, then you're not necessarily seen as competent. And if you're seen as competent, you're not necessarily seen as liked, which just doesn't apply to men. They're not aware of this <laughs> tightrope. Yes. And I think it's the Harvard Business School study for Heidi and Howard, which, which caused that out. So I do think there are just societal or cultural norms of how um, I think that was the phrase, it's um, gender congruity, so how people expect you to behave. And when you behave in a slightly different way, it throws them. So I might be described as ambitious, but me being described as ambitious can can sometimes sound negative because I'm a female that's ambitious, which somehow gets translated into aggressive. And I don't quite know <laughs> how that works because it shouldn't be it shouldn't be there shouldn't be a difference in in how the word ambitious is described or attributed between men and women so i do think there's societal and cultural norms you know we know that unless you get to a certain group and sometimes the quota says 30% sometimes the stats say 20% but if you are rep- if you fall below say 20% representation then you're going to get subject to stereotyping because you're not able to make a meaningful impact um and then i think um when you look at, at women themselves you know sometimes we Sometimes we hold ourselves back by just lacking that bit of confidence. You know, I I was, and again, it's a terrible phrase, I I hate using it, I was, I guess, quite ambitious or assertive in in wanting my next job. Some people may say pushy. I've never heard a man described as pushy, by the way, but I've heard plenty of women described as pushy. But um, some women hold themselves back because, again, you know, there's the stats, I think, in the Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg book, book, which show that if if there are 10 skills listed for a job, a woman will only apply if she can do sort of eight or nine of them, but a man will apply if he can do two or three. He'll go, well, I'll be fine. So we we hold ourselves back by perhaps, you know, in self-limiting ways, lack of confidence. So in that instance, I think we need to give women, you know, an arm around the shoulder and kind of boost their confidence and say, look, of course you can do it, and here's why you can do it, which is why clubs like Weckle, why your radio show is so important and why books like Lean In are important because it kind of says, you know, yes, we can. <laughs> and then I think there are other other times when 
we hold ourselves back by saying, oh, I'm not sure I can do it. And I sort of say, rather than an arm around the shoulder, you, you actually just need to kick up the backside. Which I, think isn't <laughs> I think that's not a profanity. I think I'm okay. No. Um, <laughs> Very well said. <laughs> but you say, come on, you know, of course you can do it. And actually, yes. there's a frustration with saying to them, come on, you know, really, I, I, let's give you the tools to help yourself. But stop holding yourself back, please, because I do think there's a generational shift in today's age. We should be able to go for it and we should be able to lift our hands up and probably be a bit more assertive as well. Mm, absolutely. That's a great, great lesson for young women. You know, when you mentioned the book, Lean In, and, and I know that you are very fond of that book and that you read it. And, you know, there was I and I agree with you. I, I loved the message behind what Cheryl is, is saying. And although, as with everything, there was always, you know, a little bit of controversy. Some people mm-hmm. didn't like it for certain reasons. Um, what what would you say to to those that, you know, kind of took a negative tone from the book? I mean, I read some people being a bit sniffy about it, kind of saying, well, it's easy for you, Cheryl, you're, you know, you're worth yes. Yes. multi-millions and you can fly your kids on a private plane. But I don't, I'm not sure she started out with multi-millions. And if you read the book properly in the preface, she kind of says, look, here's the deal. Here's where I am. So accept that. But what she is trying to do is make a difference for all women, not just for women who who only operate on on private planes. So I just think it's I think it's easy for people to snipe. Um, and I just don't really see the point of that. I mean, I was reading your website, Susan, you described yourself as a relentless optimist, which I love. Mm. Um, and I just think it's easy to be negative and cynical and, and poke fingers at people. But actually, Cheryl, by writing that book, has started a brilliant debate, which has made people think about it and talk about it more. So if nothing else, that's right. People should be respectful of that. And then if they're so bright and, and clever, they can write their own book as That's well. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Tell them to try. Right. Listen, we're, um, Lindsay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about um, where you see artificial intelligence and its effect on media and marketing. We will be right back. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177.
Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Um, I just want to mention that Dr. Dupree had to jump off and, and head back to surgery, um, but we are live with Lindsay Patterson. Again, Lindsay is the CEO of Maxis Worldwide, and uh, we're having great conversation about women and, you know, in the work world and, and some of the things that um, perhaps have been holding us back from really um, finding our voice and stepping out and leaning in and all of that good stuff. Um, one of the things you mentioned, Lindsay, about ambition, and again, I so agree with you that is not a negative word and it should not be for either a man or a woman. And I would say that, um, you know, you have a drive um, to to work and make a difference in your industry. And I wondered where that drive comes from in you. In other words, what it, why do you want to uh, why do you want to be successful? What is it that makes you work so hard and care about the quality of your work? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And I think you know back to you you asked about swimming. I think swimming, you know, so training hard, which I guess is the same as working hard, reaped reward. So if I trained hard, I would win races. And I quite liked winning races. Um, I, I liked sort of the payoff of training hard, you know, feeling strong and winning. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong with winning. Sometimes winning can seem like a negative term. And it doesn't mean winning at all costs. But I think I understood that that winning and competing, you know, and that was, you know, it won me praise, I guess, from my parents as well, if we're going back and thinking about childhood. So, so training and working hard and being successful was was always seen as a good as a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we I did this amazing five years ago now an amazing course at WPP, which is our parent course. Um, that's our parent company, run by a lady called Charlotte Beers. And Charlotte Beers was really a, a legendary ad woman. So she was the first ever female global CEO of an ad agency for Ogilvy and Mather. Um, literally back in the Mad Men era. Yes, so we right. think we got it hard now. Right, <laughs> I know, yes. <laughs> um, and she now runs the course, only only one a year, for, literally for eight very senior women at WPP from all over the world getting together. And she really sort of forces you to go back and think about what drives you. And we had to do, um, <clears throat> we had to create a self-portrait of, of what had got us to where we were now. And funnily enough, my first self-portrait was a, a sort of collage of my swimming successes and I talked about as I just described to you kind of feeling that, that competing and winning was good and that's that sense of drive and achievement was always seen as a positive thing for me so that was fine and then we had to do um, we had a kind of a three-month hiatus before the second part of the the course and we had to think about a future um, a future portrait of where we wanted to be in the future so I picked carried on the swimming analogy, I picked a picture of the U.S. men's winning relay team from, must have been from 12 years ago, it's when Michael Phelps won eight gold, basically, and it was a picture of the relay team, and Michael Phelps was in, in the picture, but he was congratulating the swimmer that had just ended the race, who'd won the relay for them, and I explained that, you know, now I wanted to move on and be part of a, a brilliant team, and, you know, look how I wasn't the person in the water actually completing the race, I, but I, I was someone that contributed to it. So Charlotte kind of looked at me long and hard and went, mm, okay, I think I get it, and made me explain it again. And then the next morning she called me back and said, I don't buy it. 
you know, <sighs> I, I don't buy, I don't buy that picture. Tell me why you picked that picture. And I sort of tried to explain. She said, why did you pick that picture of that relay team? And the reason I'd picked that picture of that relay team was because it had Michael Phelps in it. And actually the person I was identifying with or the person I wanted to be was Michael Phelps. And so she pulled that out of me painfully. And she said, you know, why do you feel so bad or so loath to say that you just want to be the best you can possibly be? And you, you know, to analogize with Michael, you want to be the best in the world. And I said, I don't know. You know, mm. she was like, stop being so, don't hold back. If that's what you want to be, if that's what drives you, then mm. acknowledge it. So I don't know if that fully answers your question. But yeah, no, I, I think... I want to be really good at my job. That, that's <laughs> right. That's right. I mean, that's a... that's. It's a beautiful story because it, um, again, it kind of speaks to how we need not fear or be apprehensive about um, wanting greatness, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think the reason, you know, greatness leads to uh, making a difference. So, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that is a wonderful positive thing, again, whether it's for a man or a woman. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, following on from... You know, Beth. I mean, I'm humbled by her story, and I've listened to some of your other podcasts. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saving lives. I'm not making a difference in that way. So, I'm just to put it in context. You know, I want to be as good as I can and, and as helpful. And I guess my contribution back, you know, beyond business success, is is to try and help women in my company and across my industry. But you know, I feel humble to be on the same show as someone like her so just some uh, context or some humility there yeah well no I you know what and I beg to differ because I think you know aside from the work that you're doing outside um, uh, of Maxis even in your work and I can tell from what I've read that you always kind of bring it back to the human element this is you know mm-hmm. this is a quote from you we believe that the real opportunity for media via our leading change philosophy is to be human in a digital world world. Um, I I loved that because I think, you know, we are, we're headed for who knows where, you know, when it comes to technology uh, and everything being digital. And it's scary sometimes. Um, There's some wonderful opportunities for us with um, internet and, and technology. It allows us to do many things, but where is that human element going to be in the big picture? So I get the sense that it's important to you to always go back to that. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I know you touched on before the break, you know, when we think about AI and things, you know, we, the World Economic Forum, so I didn't go to Davos this year. I went last year. I was I was in Australia this year. But they, they're talking about the fourth industrial revolution, which is a technological revolution. And, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, um, AI, machine learning, technology, data, you know, and so the Internet of Things is going to join up you know, manufacturing supply chains, marketing, sales, consumption, the speed's going to get faster. And all of those things where you just go, oh, my God, you know, it's really, everything's changing so fast. And, of course, we're changing, we're driving that change as well. We're all obsessed by our smartphones and look at them 150 times a day. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I do think there's a there's a sense check or a stop um, point there where you think about um, AI or machine learning and, you know, I think AI will get or or can get as smart or smarter than our brains to some extent. Um, You know, it'll learn, you know, machines will learn how to do things um, in a slightly clumsy way. 
to begin with, but they will get smarter than our than our human brains. Um, but what they can't do is replace our hearts and soul or our empathy, our intuition, or that that level of you know what do humans really need, want, or feel. And I think it's quite hard to machine learn that. But I, I you know I think AI will will be fantastic. But I don't think it means that machines are going to take over the world and we'll all be out of I'll all be out of a job. I hope not. I hope not. Yeah. You know, one of the things when I was reading about that is is just this simple quote that, you know, robots can learn, but can they care? And, yeah. you know, that's that's a big question, but that's the kind of question that makes me feel more relieved <laughs> about the yeah. fact that they won't take over the world because how they cannot. You know, they're lacking that um, that human. Empathy. Yes, yeah, I think empathy yes. Is empathy. Can't be, hard, can't be hardwired, maybe. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, let me ask you this, Lindsay. How, obviously, you know you are successful, and you and you must be a great leader, and you motivate your team to work hard and produce results for you. What is your mantra in that? In other words, what do you um, stay focused on in trying to motivate the people that work for and with you? Um, well, that's a good question and actually I'm just I'm just writing that's what I've been doing because it's President's Day so there's literally nobody in the office other than me today. <laughs> it's quiet isn't it? Yeah. It's very quiet. Um, so I'm finishing off a deck called Leadership, Culture and Change or a paper on that which I'm going to talk about in Hong Kong in a couple of weeks time. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to think about you know what what my style is or what I think successful leadership is right now and actually I think the old ways of leading and certainly when I came into my role you know when you're when you're new relatively new relatively young the only female in my organization um, at the global sort of board level you observe and you kind of watch other people's behaviors for a bit to try and you know I guess to try and understand how what you might do in that that new in that new world but actually a lot of what I observed I don't agree with or I don't like and I guess I'm becoming more confident as I've been in the role longer about my style being well, I, I think being a better start or certainly yes, or working, style. right? Yeah. Yes. So I guess the you know I, the old sort of kind of ways of leadership were kind of command and control, quite restricted access and hierarchical, so that certain amounts of people would know certain levels of information, and the withholding of information was power. You know, leaders would have charisma for sure, but they would they would sort of talk and tell people what to do in a big focus on numbers. And I think my my way of leading would be more about influencing. And persuasion. So it's not about control. It's about influencing, you know, open access, being, you know, networked rather than hierarchical. So making your networks work across your companies and your parent companies and your partners. Still need charisma. I mm-hmm. think that's still really important in a leader, but listening and consulting rather than talking and telling. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the key thing, I think, is this balance of EQ and IQ. So you need to have, you know, the the IQ to succeed in running a business, and we are a very numbers-driven and focused organisation. But you need the EQ to manage the talent, um, which kind of leads you to well, who, who's your who who's your audience or who, who's your talent. And the average age of a Maxis employee is 27. So <laughs> most CEOs are baby boomers or Gen Xers. Pretty much all of our workforce are Gen are Gen Y. And they have very different expectations of what they want to do in the workplace, yes, and what they and how they expect leaders to to perform. So I I, I keep I keep those thoughts 
front and centre and you know they they want collaboration they want flexibility they want to be able to connect on a personal level you know they're very happy to challenge the status quo and some of that horrifies older leaders um, I don't think it's a male female thing I think it's just a generational thing but actually I, I think it's um I think it's it, it's great I just think you have to listen and understand the understand the people that you're trying to lead because just being given a title of a CEO is meaningless you know there's you're not a leader unless people want to follow you that's right and I think for people to follow you you have to understand what they want and need and, and what will motivate them yeah oh I think that's that's smart you know again who you know who are you working with and where where are they coming from what are their perceptions and um you know, uh, it's funny, as you were describing the millennials, I think one of the funny things is they expect such beautiful and elaborate um, office settings. <laughs> these yeah. these offices I go into have, you know, the rock climbing walls and the ball pits <laughs> and the cappuccino <laughs> machines. And yeah, yeah, it's amazing. We've got all, of, we've got all in, in our latest office. Uh, um, so our office in L.A. is awesome. And our office in London, which is the newest, we just moved offices, so we're about three months in. Yeah. I mean, it's a great place to work. It's fully agile working, so no one has a set desk. You you have a locker. You you put your laptop and your keyboard away at night. You have broad areas where you sit with your teams, but you sit at a different desk every day. We have small pods and massive tables. We have stand-up tables. We have ping-pong tables. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have a swing that you can sit on. And those things, and we have free Pilates. We have free coaching. We have free crazy dancing everyone gets two hours to go to the gym that doesn't have to be taken out of their lunchtime or after work you know tons of things because we're in a really competitive environment for talent so we have to listen and I think some old people kind of go you're pandering to those millennials it's like well we're not we're just actually adapting so that we keep the best talent in the business so and it's a fun environment you know it's fabulous to walk in and feel the vibrancy and see people working in different groups and collaborating and and that's that's what we need yes and 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 do you believe that it adds to the creativity definitely yeah yeah i mean no one is created by staring at a computer screen that's right that's right what and and speaking of that tell me what is it that inspires you when you're looking you you do some writing and of course you know um there's a lot of blogs out there. There's a lot of people writing articles every day, all day long. Things are out in social media. Where, where do you find your inspiration for um, what your next post is going to be? Um, well, I think dangerously. Sometimes it's what's irritating me. <laughs> <laughs> and what is that? <laughs> what things are? Well, actually, yeah, that's a good question. You know, what is it that, um, you know, what are some of your goals? What are some of the things that you would like to see change in, in your industry or just in the world in general? Well, I think, you know, that this, um, I think at the moment is thinking a lot about leadership and old ways of working and command and control because I do feel like a slightly lone voice at time, and I sometimes worry that I'm, being naively optimistic or am I am I almost thinking too much about how we change the working environment but but I'm becoming more confident to go well no actually I'm right and everyone else is wrong (laughs) (laughs) I'm Um, on your side Lindsay thinking more about how we have talent programs that allow 
um, you know, people just, you know, we've just launched a global exchange program. So we've got 45 offices taking place around the world where we'll send colleagues on a two-week experience in another market and they get to sort of live, sleep, eat and breathe with their colleagues. So actually, it's a relatively cost-efficient way of doing it because you, you stay at the other person's house. So somebody from Maxis, Los Angeles might go to Maxis, Finland um, for two weeks and they live with that colleague and they experience everything. So the, no, the that's culture, a great family, opportunity. The work. Yeah. Yeah, and then, that, and then they come home and then somebody else, not the same person, but somebody, say, from Maxis, Mexico, then goes to... LA. So you get kind of two different cultural experiences and, and people will curate diaries. They'll talk about the differences and they'll talk about media differences and business differences. But that's what young people want. I mean, I, I sent out a newsletter with a short kind of video to get people excited about it. And I guess the video, the email probably goes out to two and a half thousand, two thousand seven hundred people. Mm. And after a week, I'd, <laughs> I'd had just under two thousand clicks on the video, which is unheard of wow. um so we're going to be slightly oversubscribed I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good launch yeah yeah um, but you know i think one of the the so a, a member of blog i wrote because it was something i was wrestling with so i think it's things i think about that kind of nag on your mind i remember i read a blog about you know that line between leading or managing but having friends at work and i think I don't know if this is a, maybe more of a female thing than a male thing, but, you know, I do have some good, very good friends who I've known for a number of years from different workspaces who now work at Maxis. And I think sometimes other people are a bit suspicious or uneasy about that. But I, I don't have any issue with it because I feel pretty comfortable and confident that in the workplace I'm the CEO and outside of the workplace I'm not. I'm I'm Lindsay, who's you know, their mate and their friend and, you know, we might go shopping or... So I, you know, I sometimes write about things like that. You know, is there this... Is there a is there a, a line, a strange line that you shouldn't cross? Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, I guess the danger, is, as I said, is I, I write about things that are frustrating in a way. Yeah. <laughs> or things I'm trying to figure out and maybe yeah. writing it down helps you figure it out. Yeah, definitely. It, you know, it's like talking through something, writing through something. It can be really... Mm you know, it's therapeutic for sure, but also generate some conversation. Um, can you share, tell me what maybe uh, one of your personal challenges is on a day-to-day. What's something that you kind of battle with um, either, um, you know, in your professional or personal life that is uh, not necessarily an adversity, but something that you just have to work on on a day-to-day? Um, it's gonna, it'll sound really dull, but I just have to work on, um, I don't think it's balance because I think balance is a misnomer, but it's, it's when I'm away, especially when I'm away from home, um, I will just, you just work and work and work (laughs) and, um, and in the evenings you will have work dinners. Mm. So it's trying to work out. And, and I do most of that because, as you can tell, I love my job. And I love, I think, networking and understanding and working with border groups of people and going out for dinner. It's a very social industry, so it's all part of my job. But I think carving out time to just be quiet and to think mm. and to and to exercise, to be really honest with you. Yes. Um, I'm not good enough at doing it. So, And if I exercise, I know that I'll feel better. But 
sometimes you'll I'll make the mistake of looking at emails as soon as I wake up and then I get drawn into them which means I, I don't go to the gym yes um, and I haven't exercised today so after this I'm going to go and do a big walk around <laughs> New York in um, the snow I'll go, do, I'll go for an hour's walk and yes. I'll you know or if it's pouring with rain I'll, I will go to the gym and it's pretty miserable the gym at my hotel but I will I'll do it because I feel better so that I, I think that's the the challenge is to not work all the time yeah and it is hard and again you know it's Speaking of technology, we're so able to be constantly working um, because of it. We have, you know, we have access to our emails and our texts, and so it just is constantly coming at us. And you have to purposely, you know, put the phone down, walk away from the laptop. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the um, program you launched, Walk the Talk? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I want to hear about it. This is um, something that. Um, and, and again, when I was reading it, it looked like it was something for the senior women at your company uh, that the younger women were going to help them with. Is that right? Or um, not not yet. No. So it's it's very new. So it hasn't launched yet. So I'll be running. It's called Walk the Talk. And this was this was really kind of a realization as I was I was talking at a um, another Women to Watch, but it's an ad age Women to Watch. So Tio, not the number two. They they run Women to Watch, which is a recognition program for the ad industry been running for 20 years um and i was honored last year which was great and you had to do a a short short sort of speech um and i was i guess i was sort of writing about it and, and really the realization hit me that it was great to stand up on a stage and get an award and it was great to kind of say well i mentor lots of women and i've been president of wackle so it felt like i was doing lots for women and that was i guess one of the reasons i was being recognized but actually I thought, well, what am I really doing for women within Maxis? How am I how am I actually using the power I have as the CEO to help them? And it's to help create a level playing field for women. So that's made me think about two programs. The first is Walk the Talk, which are three events, one in New York for our America's women, one in London for Europe, and one in Thailand for Asia. Um, for sort of senior female leaders, there'll be about 200 in total. It's at senior female leaders and the next generation of standout talent, but it's to empower and inspire them to reach their potential. Um, and it, it's going to be quite, it's not a training program. It's more of a sort of journey of discovery about what empowers and what holds us back as women in this industry. You know, creating a space and environment to look at your own personal journey, consider the bigger game, and then develop tools to get there. And, you know, even thinking about the venue, I'm sure my CFO he keeps rolling his eyes because we said, you know, outdoor space is very important. And um, we will probably do yoga in the morning, first thing. And, you know, those things are to create the right environment for women to think about how they can get to the next stage in their career. So that's really exciting. I'm working with a professional organization called Shine, who, who exclusively do um, events for women. Um, they do them globally, actually. They're, they just happen to be based in the UK. And then allied to that, um, a, a program called Mind the Gap, which is about getting to grips with the data and then making commitments to sort of change in, in policies to look at the pay gap, um, to look at maternity and paternity um, uh, offerings across Maxis and to look at flexible working. Because until we solve some of those practical problems, then it will be hard for women to get to the next level. So a couple of programs very specifically on not women are great at the expense of men, but to try and create a level playing field and to drive equality at Maxis. So I'm really excited that we're that they're going to kickstart this year. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think, you know, there was an article that came out recently. Um, I think it was Bloomberg. Um, someone was, was making the case that there is – 
too much talking, a lot of talking about, you know, yeah. how, you know, we can get, right? Um, yeah. And I think that, and I think I responded. I think there's a lot going on um, outside of just talking and bringing awareness to this. I think there's all kinds of wonderful programs and organizations and um, resources and education. Um, but it's interesting what you just said kind of made me think that really, you you know, your personal development has to come first before your professional development. And when you're in a healthy place, um, that is when you will probably, you know, have and see success in your career. So it's important to do all the things um, like what you're talking about that you're going to be doing within your own company. Yeah, I mean, we have we have leadership programs and we talk about the skills needed to lead clients and we have planning programs and we have we have loads of training. So, you know, walk the talk is work. It will relate to work, but it's about understanding and unlocking the potential inside in order to to allow women to give them the confidence to be to step up to be ambitious, to ask for that next um, piece of responsibility and to feel confident when they do it. So yeah, That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's really important. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, Lindsay. Um, first, I wanted to just uh, make sure you would give out it, your contact information in case one of the listeners wants to get in touch with you. Yep, that, that, that's fine. So um, I'm on Twitter, so at Lindsay Maxis. So Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y Maxis. Um, so maybe to tweet, um, or my email address is lindsay.patterson at maxisglobal.com. But I, I, I guess it will be on your website. It will be, well. yes. I'm going to be putting it all out. And, it, and it's lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. There's a couple of different yeah. ways to spell lindsay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and just one last bit of advice I'd love to hear from you, Lindsay, for the listeners, especially women that are kind of on the cusp of um, perhaps making a big decision or career change. What what words of wisdom would you leave them with? Uh, I think I think the lesson I learned probably about five years ago, which has really struck with me. And it sounds like an odd phrase, but it's step in front of the work. And what that means is, I think I underestimated the the, the impact actually of the individual or the power of the person in a work environment so sometimes we spend ages you know sweating over a document or a deck or um, a report um, and actually the truth is that you know John Lindsay and Molly could all write the same deck or report or uh, presentation but actually it will be bought or understood or or bought into by a client or an organization based on the strength of the person delivering it. Mm. So I think the power of you, so stepping in front of the words and actually delivering with conviction, with authenticity and with your your personality is, is much more important than, than perhaps you realize when you're younger. Mm. That's a wonderful way to leave the show. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I really appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thank you. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Have a great week.